Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're finishing up our series today, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, with a message entitled, Look for a Unified Bible. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've been thinking about Romans 13, verse 3, which is a passage about the relationship of Christians to earthly or secular governments. And that passage says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, does that seem like an impossible statement to believe? And I put it to you, Jesus' own words, recorded in Matthew 10, 17-18, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So it turns out, rulers sometimes are a terror to good conduct, and if you do what is good, the very act of doing good can make the government a terrifying foe indeed. So there you have it. Paul seems to be saying that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, and Jesus is promising us that rulers will arrest us because of our faithfulness to him. So is that a contradiction in the Bible? Or are we just supposed to ignore the potential conflict? You know, we've been asking and then trying to answer the question of how can we recognize when one's hearing Bible teaching that one can trust? And here I want to say one should look for two very important issues. Does the Bible teacher believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture? That's the first item. And second, does the Bible teacher believe that the Bible forms a unity with one overarching story? Well, keep that in mind, and let's get back to my opening illustration of Romans versus Matthew. See, on the one hand, it might be possible to say, well, now, you know, these two passages just can't be reconciled with each other. And so, from that perspective, it might be possible to simply argue that the Bible contains examples of a diversity of viewpoints, or to put it in more practical language, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, that's not the only conclusion one can come to. There are a great many Bible teachers and scholars, I I count myself somewhere in that camp, who argue that in order to understand Romans 13, one also needs to understand Matthew 10. You see, in Romans, Paul is speaking about a general principle, not about a specific principle. And on the other hand, Jesus is speaking about specific cases and not general cases. You see, it would be wrong to say that all governments only punish bad behavior and reward good behavior, but it would be equally wrong to say that all governments persecute believers because there have been all manner of cases where governments have gone to extraordinary means to protect and defend the rights of Christians. And I'm trying to make a point, and my point is that in order to understand a given passage of Scripture, one is well served to know something about the whole counsel of God, so that when one teaches about a specific passage of Scripture, it's often a great help to understand another passage which, at least at the outset, might seem to say the opposite. But a careful study of Scripture leads one to realize that both passages are true and that by examining both, we can learn the truth of each passage and put all relevant scriptures together and learn to affirm the wider truth or the grand narrative. Let me give you one more example of the same point. Romans 3.28 has Paul saying, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
And yet James 2.24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so at the outset, it looks like a clear contradiction. And yet, Bible-believing Christians have long trumpeted the glorious truth that both of these statements are true. How can that be? Well, the answer lies completely in the word works. And the different thing that Paul means when he says works as compared to what James means. You see, when Paul uses the word works, he means works righteousness, or to put it in lay terms, he means that we think we can, by our works, earn merit or goodness bucks in our relationship with God. And to that, Paul would say, absolutely not. You add nothing to your salvation by what you do. You're not getting more credits before God through your deeds. You're saved by faith alone. But when James uses the word works, he doesn't mean works righteousness at all. You see, for James, works is synonymous with obedience. And so to those who say they trust in Christ alone for their salvation, but have not become obedient to God, James says, ah, you don't understand. Faith without works or faith without obedience to the Lord is absolutely worthless. Now, I hope you can see how important it is to say both things. So don't think for a moment that what you do is earning your salvation. And also, don't think for a moment that you can say you believe God and at the same time be disobedient from your heart and soul. Now, when you're teaching Romans 3.28 or when you're teaching James 2.24, it's important to remember the other passage for It's a part of the wider unity of the Bible that keeps us from misinterpreting a given Bible verse. It's important to correct those who say, you know, God owes me something, or God is keeping track of my righteous deeds, and when I get enough, I'm going to get to go to heaven. No, we shout. No one is justified by works, but by faith alone. And for those who imagine that the kind of faith the Bible commends is simply an easy believism that doesn't demand that we deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus even unto death, we equally loudly shout, no, it simply is not so. You know, it's often said that the Bible interprets itself. And whenever we interpret a Bible passage in such a way that makes it say something that's patently denied in another part of Scripture, we do well to question our interpretation. For the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. And I've been talking about Bible teaching you can trust. Good Bible teachers are aware of the underlying unity behind the entire 66 books of our Bible. They're aware of a grand narrative, an overlying story that the God of the Bible so oversaw the composition of our Bible that as long as we continue to take into account the entirety of Scripture— we're most likely to get our interpretations right. In this regard, let's consider a very important passage, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. That passage simply says, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? I know the wider context of that verse is about the value of the gift of tongues. You know, Paul is saying that when the church gathers together, he would rather speak five words using rational speech, which is understood by all, than 10,000 words in tongues that are not understood. Indeed, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who's going to get ready for battle? So that's the context of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. But there's a principle behind this text that must not be missed. You know, in the ancient world, militaries would communicate to their troops using bugle sounds. 
Every soldier had to be aware of every single bugle call and what that sound actually signified. So you have to imagine that the bugler would be required to keep close to the commander at all times, and the commander would bark out an order, and the bugler would then be required to translate that order into a bugle call, and that would have been memorized by all the members on the battlefield. If the sound is unclear, chaos results on the battlefield, and very likely the battle is going to be lost. Well, that's the principle that every Bible teacher labors under. When he learns the Word of God, he's able to communicate the entirety of the Word so that all God's people can clearly understand. Now, imagine that on one occasion a preacher says, you know, we're saved by faith alone— And then on the next occasion, he says, well, we're actually not saved by faith alone, but it has to be faith accompanied by works. And in the minds of God's people, confusion results, chaos, disagreement. And to make matters so much worse, what results is that the way of salvation becomes obscure and cloudy, and soon everyone develops their own theories regarding the pathway to eternal life. So a clear bugle sound means that every time the teacher teaches, he's not only clear, he's accurate. He understands the text that's before him, and he also understands that text against the wider teachings of the whole Bible. And what then develops in the minds of God's people is something that's absolutely precious. It's called certainty. The way forward becomes plain. God's people are also encouraged to read their own Bible carefully. But, and this is the key, because the Bible teachers continues to hold the entire Bible before him, he's able to explain every given passage in a way that the bugle call is distinct. You know, that is, on one occasion he doesn't say advance, and then in the very next breath he says retreat. Indeed, every single Bible teacher, when they're good Bible teachers, remain remarkably consistent over the years so that those reading their own Bible and seeking to follow the Lord through the teachings of the Bible also become remarkably consistent. The bugle call remains clear. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries, to receive Dr. Neufeld's new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, on CD for free, or to offer a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There are a number of passages in Scripture that give us the the impression that the writers of the Bible, that is, the apostles and the prophets, well, they were quite aware that they were themselves writing within the restrictions of a unified Bible. 
So consider how the book of Galatians begins. Galatians 1, 6-9, which comes after the introduction, then says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So with that, we notice in this text that the Galatian Christians have become confused about the gospel. In their own minds, clearly, the bugle has played an indistinct sound, and now one of them is marching in one direction and the other in the very opposite direction. And as we read through Galatians, we can soon discover the heart of the problem. The Judaizers have found their way to Galatia, and they have insisted that unless one is circumcised and observe the law's dietary restrictions, well, you can't be saved. Some believe that, and now they're bewitched. It's like a spell has been cast on them. See, at one time, they were very clear on this matter, and out of their clarity, they were winning men and women to Christ, Jews and Gentiles, telling them that they're saved by faith alone. But now the Judaizers have cast a spell on them. And so in order to help them out, Paul makes a statement that should also be a clarifying statement for all of us. If either an angel from heaven, or for that matter, if, if we preach a gospel contrary to the one that has already been preached to you, that is, whether it's us or an angel, let there be an anathema on them. Let the curse of God rest on such a preacher, even if that preacher is one of us, says Paul. Now, The we that Paul refers to, well, clearly, that does refer to himself. If I end up preaching something that's not in accordance with the gospel of grace, let a curse fall on me. But since Paul uses the word we, well now, clearly he also has others in mind. The we has to include the other apostles. And it has to include anyone else that would include the Judaizers who came to town to confuse the congregation. Paul says, look, if if anyone veers from the one message and they persist in this aberrant teaching, it doesn't matter who they are or what their status is in the church or what degrees or titles they might have had or the size of their audience or the fact that all men speak well of them. If they veer from the one message or the unified message of the whole Bible, then let a curse fall on them, resulting in everlasting condemnation. That's what he's saying here. Indeed, in order to make the point, Paul becomes quite personal. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, the gospel he preached is not something he came up with. Rather, he received it by revelation from Jesus himself. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, through to verse 14, Paul mentions a time when Peter himself, that is, yeah, Peter, the rock of the church, was not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. And that Peter, yeah, even Peter had to be confronted with the one unified message of the gospel. See, that would mean that Paul clearly thought that all Bible readers did give one unified message and that there was an underlying unity that ran through the pages of the entire Bible. And we see that same perspective repeated throughout the whole Bible. Let's go back to the First Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, 1 to 3. It says, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, 
And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So I hope you see what's happening. A prophet comes along. He's able to do miracles and through that to convince a great many people that God is with him. But the message he speaks is, go after other gods, and it's in direct contradiction to the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so this prophet states something that conflicts with an earlier revelation. Look, says Moses, it doesn't matter if he's done miracles by the yard. Don't you care or go after that prophet? Watch this principle again in Jeremiah chapter 26. There in that chapter, the prophet Jeremiah is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem because of her sins. And in response, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are not just a little angry, well, they're incensed. I mean, after all, who do you think you are? Condemning us like that, giving us cause for panic. And furthermore, they say, these words are giving our army reason to give up. These words are treasonous, and the prophet Jeremiah should be put to death. Well, now, that's what might have happened, except something else happened. And let me read it to you from Jeremiah 26, 17 to 19. It says, And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Boy, I hope you caught what just happened there. The godly elders in the land of Israel said, look, We know that Micah was a prophet, and this man, Jeremiah, I mean, whatever you think of him, what he's saying, well, now, that's exactly what Micah said so many years ago. Micah and Jeremiah, they have one unified message, as do all the prophets of God. See, this thing, that the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, presents us with one unified message, and that every single teacher of the Bible is a true teacher if... He preaches what is true, not just his favorite text that he repeats over and over again. Instead, he's teaching the full counsel of God. See, that's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders when he told them that he was not guilty of the blood of any man, for he had not hesitated, not just to give his favorite doctrine, but to teach the full counsel of God. And by the way, That's one of the reasons why, as but one example, we should all reject the teachings of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, of course. There are passages in Scripture that do teach us that there are principles of godly wisdom that lead to prosperity. But very rarely will you hear these teachers also referring to those passages in Scripture that demand that we embrace the cost of discipleship, which might include the loss of all things, all things, and add suffering to the mix so that we might gain Christ. You see what they've done. They fixated on one type of passage, and therefore they've misunderstood that passage, and then they duly ignore the rest of Scripture. And Paul has said, an anathema upon them. But that leads me now to the unified message of the Bible. 
Is there something or somewhere that gives us the key to understanding the entire book? Indeed, clearly there is. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You know, the word Christ means the Messiah. I'll put it this way. The unifying theme of every single verse of Scripture is to show us that in and through his chosen Messiah, who ends up being Jesus, the eternal Son of the living God, that is, in Jesus the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself. Whether it's in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, or whether it's all the way to the end in Revelation 5 that Jesus alone is able to break the seals and open the scroll. Look, we find that there is but one unified whole, and it's Jesus, the great Son of God, the great lover of the human race, who has, through his sacrifice, reconciled the whole world to himself. And that's the key to recognizing good Bible teaching. Good Bible teaching is clear. It's mindful of the entire revelation of Scripture. It's committed to Bible inerrancy. It's committed to a Bible that never contradicts itself. But most importantly, it keeps putting Jesus at the center of everything that's written. That's Bible teaching you can trust. Trust that, and it will be well with you. Thanks, John. It was a great series. So now at the end of this series, what do you want the listener to take away more than anything when it comes to studying the Bible? Well, I do think that I want to say that the Bible that you hold uh, is infallible, it's inerrant, and it is the Word of God that God intended for us. If this is true, and it is, then I want to say that the thing that you need to take from this, that there is no greater passion that you can have, but then that you look for Bible teaching that gives you further insight into the true nature of Scripture. So don't lean on something that, you know, that is outside of the bounds of Scripture. Um, I would say to everyone who's listening as well, continue to read your Bible regularly, year after year, over and over again, understand its themes, become a Bible-centered person. Bible-centered people are Christ-centered people. Christ-centered people are grace-centered people. So uh, we, we never loose ourselves from the text itself. Uh, I, I think that is everything I've been trying to say. So when you're looking to be taught, look for that kind of teaching. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You remind us every day, you challenge us, to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful. And it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. 
To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.